Hello everyone and welcome back to our musical spark notes. Today we're looking at Act 2 of Siegfried, the third opera in the Ring Cycle. And we've got an exciting act for you today. This is, I think, my favorite act in this opera, Siegfried. A lot of action. And we'll dive right in. We start, we've shifted scene a little bit, and now we are deep in a forest where this dragon-slash-giant Fafner is holding the ring. Just as a little kind of background, just to refresh our memories, Fafner is one of the two giants who built Valhalla for Wotan, the king of the gods. As payment for doing that, he received the ring from Wotan, and our dedicated listeners will remember that he... Uh, killed his brother in a dispute over this ring, and so the ring has been really rearing its horns and showing its power against the giant Fafner, and so he's been locked up in a cave, brooding over his possession of the ring, and he's also in possession of another very important uh, artifact in this ring cycle plot, that of the Tarnhelm, this magic helmet that allows you to transform into whatever you want to. So he's transformed into a dragon and he's sitting in this cave. And so we open with some music that evokes this deep forest. And let's listen to a little bit of the opening. I actually think it's worth listening to uh, to this entire opening of Act Two. It's great music. It's very different music from a lot of Wagner. It's almost cinematic in a way. But in any case, let's listen to a little clip from the opening kind of orchestral interlude to set the scene for the second act. So it's a lot of low instruments there. You hear growling from the tuba. Uh, that is the motif of Fafner, the dragon. We might remember that from, from early on in Das Rheingold. And we also hear the timpani, those drums in the background playing bom, 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 which is the motif of the giants. So we're getting the scene set that we're entering Fafner's lair. A little later, we also hear many iterations of our ring motif. So we know the ring is around as well. This is all to set the stage for what's to come. And then, importantly, still we haven't uh, been introduced to any dialogue, but I want to play one more little clip from this orchestral interlude because it's another motif that is very important for us to, to have in our ears here. You may recognize it from many other appearances earlier on in the uh, in these operas. So give yourself a little test, check out if you can identify what this next leitmotif is.
right? No problem. If you uh, weren't able to remember, that's what we're here for. That is the curse motif. And that is what Albrecht sings originally when he p places this curse on the ring. And that is what we hear every time this curse uh, comes into play in some way and, and the ring is going to betray its, its holder. So... We open on Alberic watching Fafner's cave. So Alberic, a character that we haven't seen yet in Siegfried, happens to be here. And he's been waiting outside of Fafner's cave, and he's been waiting for the dragon slayer to come. He knows that someone's going to come and try to slay this dragon, and he's been waiting for this dragon slayer. So we hear some more curse motifs, and we also hear some more... We actually hear some of the Valkyrie music this ride of the Valkyries style uh, or this motif that, that comes many times throughout the, the opera Valkyrie and the Wanderer approaches. So the Wanderer or Votan in this case, uh, Votan you'll remember from Act 1 has assumed this other identity of the Wanderer so that he can interact with these earthly beings. And he shows up to the Valkyrie motif because he, of course, is the parent of the Valkyries. And when he shows up, I'm going to play a little clip of when he he actually arrives on the scene and uh, Alberic recognizes that this is not the Wanderer, but actually this is Votan. So here's when the Wanderer slash Votan enters the scene and uh, meets Alberic. So when Wotan arrives, we hear this motif that we may recognize of Valhalla goes like this. So we've heard that several times. And then we also hear this kind of descending line that we associate with Wotan's spear. So again, clearly Wotan, not the wanderer who has showed up here, and Alberic identifies him as such. He, he recognizes Wotan as the thief of his ring. Remember, last time Alberic saw Wotan, Wotan had come down into Alberic's lair and stolen the ring from him. So Alberic tells him to scram. Uh, he should not dare to try to take back the ring that, you know, was taken from him fairly through debts. And the idea, again, is that... Uh, Votan was bound by this debt. He asked the giants to build Valhalla for him, and so he had to give up this ring. That was the noble thing to do. These debts were etched in his spear, which has come for us to represent justice, honor, honoring your debts. Um, and so in this interaction, we hear a lot of the giants motif and the spear motif. And Albrecht says, um, because of his curse... We hear the curse motif again. Fafner is going to die soon. And so he kind of postulates or is wondering who's going to get the ring next. But he knows that this curse he's placed on, on the ring, it's going to lead to Fafner's demise. And it's, it's 
soon now that, that the ring is going to change hands. And so he tells, Albrecht tells of his plan to use the ring. He wants to come back into possession of the ring and use it to destroy Valhalla. Um, Wotan, though, says the ring's lord is whoever wins it. They have this kind of long, protracted argument. But Wotan says whoever comes and slays Fafner is going to be the next uh, commander of the ring. And Alberic says he, uh, he kind of understands Wotan's game here. He's trying to use earthly heroes to get back his own ring. So that's why he's uh, sired Sigmund, and he knew that Sigmund was going to give birth, birth to Siegfried. That's why he left this sword there. Wotan has been playing this, you know, long game of chess to try to get Siegfried to slay the dragon, and somehow this is going to bring him back the, the ring for himself. And in this point, we hear Wotan's anguish motif. We've heard that a couple times before, like when he's been kind of defeated or resigned to uh, his own fate, which is, is to not have the ring. Um, so Wotan says that, because remember, he was, he was in our previous scene too, so he knows that Mima is bringing Siegfried here now, and he's just there to watch. He's going to respect whoever wins the ring um, and says, you know, I'm not here to involve myself in any way. And he challenges Alberic. He says, there are two Nibelungs who want the ring, implying that both Alberic and, as we know, Mima, Alberic's brother, also has plans to get the ring for himself. He's fashioned this poison drink that he's going to give to Siegfried. But he says, you know, Alberic, you're here right now. Why don't you wake up Fafner and uh, barter with him? Tell him that, you know, if, he says, if you warn him that these slayers are coming, uh, you might he might give you the ring just for doing that. We hear the Fafner motif again, um, and Alberic falls for this, and he, he wakes up uh, Fafner, and we hear this low, grumbling voice of the dragon who says, who disturbs my slumber, like from, I think it's from Aladdin or something. There's, there's some line in some Disney movie where someone says, who disturbs my slumber? And the exact same line comes right here, low voice off stage. Um, Alberic warns Fafner, he says, you know, someone's coming. Fafner is unfazed. He's not scared at all. He says, please just let me sleep. And Wotan kind of laughs at Alberic. He's like, you know, you're you're so stupid. How could you fall for that? Of course, he's not going to be, uh, he's not going to care. And then I want to listen to a quick moment uh, of music here when Wotan says, uh, all things go their wanted way, their kind canst thou not alter. And so he says, you know, uh, there's this idea of kind of fatalism again, that these events are out of anyone's control. But I want to listen to what we hear right when when Wotan says that line. So here's that, that clip. So that's a very interesting motif that we hear there. If we remember back, that's one of the first motifs, that's actually the first motif we hear. It's the motif of the Rhine, and 
It's a weird one. We don't hear the fate motif necessarily there, but we hear the thing that set this all in motion way back at the very beginning of this entire opera, that of the Rhine. So there's this kind of sense that that from the very first notes of the opera, uh, this massive process was set in motion that's that's still just playing out for before our eyes here. So Wotan then leaves. As he leaves, we hear more of this kind of Valkyrie music. Um, and let's listen to the end of this scene as he, he rides away. Um, Albrecht says, There rides he away on lightning steed and leaves me in care and shame. Yet laugh ye on ye light-spirited, self-worshipping clan of eternals. One day shall I see you all fade. So again, there's this idea of, uh, you know, these eternal gods are pompous. They're, they think they're better than everyone else, but I have cursed this whole situation. They have their own uh, flaws and foibles that they engage in, and you just watch. Fate is going to rear its fangs, and, and we are going to see what happens. And let's listen to this moment as well, the end of scene one of, of act two. says, you know, I will see you all fade. Of course, we hear the curse motif again. At the beginning of that, we heard some of that that is the Valkyrie music that kind of represents also flying as Botan flies off on his steed. We remember that from Ride of the Valkyries where they all fly into the scene. And importantly, there's one other motif in there that we should notice. A really, really keen ears may have caught that, but the motif goes like this. Now this requires you to remember way back to the end of Valkyrie, Wotan's Farewell, where he circles Brunhilde with this magic fire, and that is kind of this farewell motif that he sings in that very poignant scene. And so that is um, an interesting one to hear right there. It's as Wotan leaves and uh, we're left kind of wondering what that, what that is actually doing there. But in a sense, there's, there's this idea that um, Wotan is helpless to what is going to unfold. Just like he was kind of, he, he was forced to, to leave his, his daughter on this rock, which he didn't really want to do. He's, other things are going to happen in this course of events that are going to cause him grief, cause him anguish. So then we go into scene two, and uh, we start scene two uh, hearing some very different music because we've got some new characters entering the scene, our title character of Siegfried and uh, Mima. So we hear the same kind of smithing 
music that we heard at the beginning of this opera when Siegfried was uh, forging metal and eventually forging his sword with Mima. And so we hear some of that, and Siegfried appears on the scene, our naive but brave hero who knows no fear. And so he asks Mima, okay, have we arrived? Is this where I'm going to learn fear? And Mima, for a long time, tells him about how scary a dragon is and that there's one in there. He, he kind of waxes poetic about how, you know, dragons breathe fire, they'll chop off your head, whatever. Um, we hear a lot of the giant's motif. Um, Siegfried also asks if the dragon has a heart. And when he asks that, we hear this... Uh, tragedy of the Volsungs or fate of the Volsungs motif. So there's going to be, that signals to us that something bad is going to befall Siegfried eventually, um, and it may have something to do with the heart of the dragon. That's kind of a, a deep cut from Wagner, because we'll wait and see what that actually uh, suggests to us. But in any case, he asks that. Mima keep try, keeps trying to scare him, um, by talking about this dragon, trying to quote-unquote teach him fear. But Siegfried is really just not scared. He's a fearless hero. Siegfried is also still repulsed by Mima. You'll remember in the first act, he's really repulsed by this guy who he knows is not his father. And so he keeps telling him, you know, you're ugly, you're not, you're, you don't look like me, I, I'm repulsed by you. He tells him to leave, and he, he doesn't want to hear any more of his kind of conniving... Uh, comments on how scary a dragon is and he says you know after i'm done slaying this dragon i'm coming to you and i'm gonna stab you next i'm i'm this fed up with you so mima says oh no just just come to me and get a drink after you kill the dragon and we know that mima is is plotting to give him a poison drink you'll notice that these dwarves are not no one in this uh this story is a particularly cunning uh character they all are pretty blunt and uh, ineffective with their deception. But at one point, Mima, in a kind of aside, says Fafner and Siegfried, Siegfried and Fafner, would each the other might slay. And then, on the other side of the stage, Siegfried is saying to himself, no son of Mima am I, that fills all my heart with joy. And I want to listen to that moment because we've got a little bit of important music here. So let's hear that moment where he says, no son of Mima am I, that fills all my heart with joy. So some creepy music there when Mima is kind of saying that aside. But then, importantly, we go in there and we hear this motif, which we've heard before. That is the minor version of that Rhine motif, which represents Erda, the goddess of nature of Earth, who... who uh, has given that stark warning to Wotan at the beginning of Rheingold. So he knows he's not the 
son of Mima here, and uh, we hear the Erda motif as he recognizes he can't be he can't be Mima's son. A weird motif actually to hear at that point because he, um, y- you know, there's some suggestion from Erda that Votan should not be meddling in these affairs, and so it's a deep connection to make that connection between Erda and and Siegfried. I honestly can't totally explain that one, but it is, I'll leave it to our listeners to potentially try to, try to parse that one out. A lot of very deep connections going on here with the leitmotifs. But in any case, then we come to one of the most famous uh, passages in this whole opera, which is often performed by itself. It's called Forest Murmurs. And we suddenly get this very different style of music. Siegfried wanders into kind of a lighter portion of the forest, and we get music like we haven't really heard in any uh, of the ring before. It's this very natural sounding music, a lot of bird sounds. And Siegfried starts to think about his mother again. Maybe that's why we get the Erda motif uh, kind of as a prelude to this scene. Not that Erda is uh, Siegfried's mother, but um, maybe there's some sort of connection there. In any case, we start hearing this forest murmur music the kind of the kind of uh this this very natural bird call sunny sounding music very abnormal for for Wagner at least thus far and we hear the this bass clarinet motif that we've heard before um it's come to represent Siegfried's mother and important female characters Zieglinda also Brunhilde, and we hear that as he says, Ah, mother, might I but look upon thee, on my mother who lived on earth. So he's thinking about his mother, and then I want us to listen to just a little bit of this Forest Murmurs passage, because it's such famous music, but also it's important music, it's very different from what we've heard, and we get all these natural forest sounds, we get these uh, bird sounds, so let's listen to a little bit of this passage. So I think this is actually a remarkable act because we've been treated to a real clinic by Wagner of showing us the full, his full ability, the full breadth of his uh, compositional style. We've got this dark, ominous music at the beginning. It's very cinematic. And then we've got the brightest, sunniest forest music here. So Siegfried is hearing this wood bird that's we've heard these calls and there's this bird that's uh, flying around in this forest scene and Siegfried wishes that he could understand the calls of this bird and so he goes to make a pipe to call the bird and first he there's this kind of funny scene where he tries to fashion 
a pipe out of a, a nice little reed, and we get the English horn that's meant to play this uh, this bird call that he first tries, and we should listen to this just because it's, it's quite humorous. We've got Siegfried first attempting to call to this bird with, with this makeshift pipe that he's created. So there you go. It's going to be fun to be the English horn player who gets to play that ridiculous passage. But in any case, Siegfried tries out that horn. It doesn't seem to work. So then he goes back and he decides, he hears the bird again. The, uh, he briefly sings the twins love motif in his head. Uh, that's the motif of Zygmunt and Zieglinda because remember he's kind of just musing on his who his parents might be at this point. And then he decides, you know what, I'm going to go get my horn instead. I'm better with the horn. The horn is this uh, instrument that's loaded with kind of Germanic folklore baggage. It's The horn is used in hunting. It represents to Wagner and to Siegfried the German Volk or the kind of spirit of German folk. As we might remember, Wagner, we're not getting so much into the politics of all of this this action or, or what's going on here in the ring cycle, but Wagner was this kind of pan-Germanist and he, he was, uh, you know, he had concerning nationalist beliefs in a lot of ways, but in any case, he believed German, the German folk to be the ultimate uh, kind of apotheosis of, of a people, and so the horn represents them in many ways. So regardless of what we might think about the implications of this horn call. In any case, we get this, what's called the long call from from Siegfried for the horn. There's about a two-minute passage where just the French horn plays, but here we get the first and fullest, not the first, but the fullest introduction to the motif of Siegfried's horn, which along with his, his other, his actual leitmotif represent his ardentness, his manliness, his Germanicism, all of these kind of slightly outdated concepts. But here is Siegfried's horn in its full iteration. We won't hear the whole call, but here's the, the beginning of it. So that goes on for a while, and it turns out in all of this ruckus, Siegfried actually wakes up the dragon Fafner instead of calling to the woodbird. He wakes up the dragon, and then, important moment, a battle ensues. So we hear Fafner wakes up, Siegfried is challenging back, challenging Fafner. They go, they go back and forth, a lot of Fafner motif, a lot of giant motif. And then let's listen for about a minute to the actual battle scene. This is an important moment, and... We don't actually get any dialogue, but we hear this battle play out between Siegfried and Fafner, who, at the end of this battle, I'll spoil it before we listen to the clip, but he stabs Fafner in the heart, the thing that he was asking about before, and slays the dragon. So let's listen to this uh, orchestral sequence when Siegfried is fighting and ultimately slays the dragon Fafner. Oh, no, no. 
All right, so some great work by the the recording engineers there at the Vienna Phil. I love that. We can hear the dragon in the background, and, and then you hear that moment. We hear a lot of Siegfried's horn going over and over. We hear a lot of the giants and Fafner's motifs. They're clashing, and then that big cymbal crash. We hear the moment where he actually stabs Fafner. So then Fafner is lying there, dying, and... We, I want to listen to one more important moment right at the end when Fafner asks, right before he he dies, he asks, Who stirred up thy childish heart to this murderous deed? In thy brain was not born what thou has wrought. So he, he says to him, he, he seems to know in some way, this was not actually Siegfried that decided to do this. There's some sort of... Uh, manipulation and behind-the-scenes work that's going on here that brought Siegfried here and that ended up slaying him, Fafner. And so it's a very ominous, portentous thing to say, and, and let's listen to the music as he says this, this very important line. that we hear our curse motif, uh, a popular motif of this particular act. And then we hear the Siegfried motif, and I think there's an important kind of leitmotivic implication there. Of course, the Siegfried motif represents Siegfried himself, but also, you'll remember, we're introduced to this motif before Siegfried is even born as this kind of hero that's going to come and and work for Wotan, or who's going to set things right for Wotan, or at least he thinks. And so Siegfried's motif is kind of loaded with this baggage of what, what Fafner says here, which is that in thy brain was not born what thou hast wrought. So there's this notion that Siegfried is kind of not acting on his own will, he's just a tool in, in Wotan's game. So Fafner says... He, he recounts how Fasolt died, his, his last words, and then he actually dies himself. Um, and right as he's dying, his, his very last words, he says, Heed thyself well, blossoming hero. He who stirred thee blind to this deed, again, so he was blind to this deed, deed designs now full surely thy death. Mark the ending, think on me. So whether he's talking about Wotan or Alberic's actual curse, he says, you know, Siegfried was blind to this idea, but now he designs surely for thy death because Siegfried has come into possession now of the ring. And we should listen to uh, this moment of music as well. Very important moment, Fafner's last words here.
I keep saying these are his last words. He actually says one more thing. He asks what the name of his slayer is, and Siegfried tells him his name, Siegfried. For some reason, I don't really get this element, but the names are this massive uh, point of importance for Wagner. He thinks that Siegfried is like the coolest name he's ever thought of, and so this is what Fafner chooses his last words to be. Tell me your name, and he says Siegfried, and it's supposed to be this like bomb mic drop. Um, I don't really get that element of the whole the whole thing, but in any case, Siegfried tells him his name as he dies, and then Siegfried has this dragon blood on his hand from from slaying the dragon, and in a very weird turn of events, he he licks or tastes the dragon blood, and he's kind of ingested this dragon blood, and now miraculously he can suddenly understand this wood bird that he was uh, struggling to understand before. So no idea how to explain that one. If you want to dive into all of the intricate symbolism of this, you, you can attempt it. Uh, my theory is that this is just a uh, crazy plot element, but in any case, he can now understand the woodbird, and we go back to this forest murmurs music again, because the woodbird is back. And the woodbird says, let him but win him the Tarnhelm, t'will serve him for deeds of renown. But could he discover the ring, it would make him the lord of the world. So the woodbird reminds Siegfried that there's this treasure that uh, Fafner is guarding, of secondary importance, the Tarnhelm, this magic helmet, and of primary importance, of course, the ring. So he goes and gets the Tarnhelm, and the ring, and that ends our second scene. So we move on to the third scene, and we start with Mima and Alberic outside the cave arguing. Some very good music. I recommend you actually listen to the the beginning of this scene. It's this kind of dwarfish, uh, sneaky, conniving music. I very much like this, the beginning of this scene three, but let's listen to about 30 seconds when Siegfried comes out of the cave and actually puts on the ring. Here's when Siegfried comes back out of the cave with Mima and Alberic. So Siegfried is looking there at the ring, kind of uh, in wonderment, and what we hear there, again, our keen ears might remember back, that is the theme of the Rhine Maidens. And if you remember, at the beginning of Das Rheingold, there's a similar scene where they're kind of uh, babbling, you know, just singing random sounds, words, but then they're also, at some points, marveling their gold and kind of babbling along about how amazing their gold is. So a similar scene where Siegfried is, he's marveling at this this ring in, in wonderment. So the woodbird, the woodbird comes back again and warns him. He says, don't trust the people you, you're about to speak to. And so the woodbird somehow is able to 
give Siegfried this power to kind of know what's what's going to come next after drinking this dragon blood. Again, don't ask me to explain how this happens, because I have no idea, to be honest, but in any case. So Mima comes up and asks him, so have you learned to fear after this, this fight? And Mima kind of starts this seductive aria with the woodbird in the background, where he's trying to fool Siegfried. And so the music is um, intentionally kind of sappy and overdone because Mima is trying to act so friendly to Siegfried and like there's nothing wrong. But we keep hearing the motif of the woodbird in the background reminding Siegfried uh, this is this is trickery. So he's, he's uh, slimily kind of talking to Siegfried. And let's hear one example of this when he actually offers him this drink. You know, he's got this poison drink and he's trying to get Siegfried to drink it, and so let's listen to a little bit of this music to hear how this woodbird is alerting Siegfried to Mima's true intentions. Alright, so there we hear Mima getting worked up, but trying to to trick Siegfried, and it gets snuffed out by a variant, again, of that woodbird motif, which in its original form sounded like this. And that comes back to kind of extinguish that music of, of Mima. So, Mima's trying to... Uh, convince Siegfried of, of uh, drinking this potion. He's trying to kind of trick him. And Siegfried starts accusing him. You know, you're, you're trying to trick me. Siegfried's getting more worked up. Mima's saying that he misunderstands. But also, this is an interesting scene because Mima seems to slip between his deception and actually admitting his, his true intentions. It's unclear if this is the influence of this wood bird or if Mima's just... Uh, kind of losing his mind or something, but he he mentions that he's gonna cut off Siegfried's head um, And he keeps he keeps saying slipping between Confessing things that he's honestly trying to do like poisoning him and trying to trick him um, so in any case Siegfried's Siegfried gets worked up and then he stabs Mima and kills him he gets so upset and the woodbird has shown him the true intentions of Mima's uh, actions, and so Siegfried kills Mima. And we should listen to the moment where he actually does this, because it's another important leitmotivic moment. So here's the moment where Siegfried stabs and kills Mima, the dwarf that had raised him. <laughs> Again, we hear the curse motif there, the motif that seems to be coming back time and time again in this act as Mima meets his fate as one of the many individuals in this plot who was lusting after the ring and, and gets stabbed by Siegfried. 
And then we get an interesting blending of two motifs that actually shows us an interesting aspect of Siegfried's horn. Because we'll remember Siegfried was raised by a Nibelung, that of Mima. Um, Siegfried's horn was presumably forged by Mima. And so we hear there at the end, first we hear this, which is kind of a simplification of Motif, if we remember way back to Rheingold, of the Nibelungs of Alberic of Mima, we hear that yump, bum, 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 over and over and over again in these kind of smithing type scenes, and then we hear that alternating with. So we're hearing. And the second half of that uh, figure is Siegfried's horn. Bum, bum, bada, bum, 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 bum. And so we notice that the rhythm of the Nibelung's motif is the same as the rhythm of Siegfried's horn, and they get blended here as Siegfried stabs Mima, this kind of culmination of, of these two forces. So another interesting interrelation between motifs here, uh, great creativity that Wagner is, is bringing to this leitmotivic system. So Siegfried leaves Mima's body in front of the cave, and we hear the Fafner motif one more time which kind of has come to represent this dark cave. So then he lies down and he thinks to himself, I'm all alone. You know, I've, I've stabbed Mima. That was the only half parent I had, but he wasn't even my parent. My parents are gone. Um, and he asks the woodbird to find him a companion. And so then we hear more woodbird music and the woodbird tells him about Brunhilde, the character who has been left on a rock by Wotan and is surrounded by magic fire. And the woodbird says, only those who know no fear can get through there. So, uh, very important point. Again, we've heard that already, but we've learned now that Siegfried is the one who does know no fear because he defeated the dragon, he fought the dragon and defeated the dragon and still did not learn this, this idea of fear. So let's listen to a little bit of the, uh, the music from this kind of ending scene. Siegfried asks, can I awaken the bride after the woodbird tells Siegfried about this, this situation with Brynhilda on the rock? And let's listen to a little bit of the music as he, as he says that. has been set up Wotan's farewell where Brunhilde is left on this rock. Many times when he sings, who can enter this, we hear the, the Siegfried motif before Siegfried is even born, this motif that goes like this. So we hear that here, and then we hear this other motif. Similarly. And again.
again, if we have keen ears, we can listen back. This is the motif that we heard over and over in that scene of Wotan's farewell. It's kind of the farewell motif along with the other motif that we heard earlier in this scene. So we've been hearkening back to that Wotan's farewell scene many times. So Siegfried has his task. He's going to go and rescue Brunhilde. He knows that he's the one who can uh, step through this ring of fire. And let's, uh, he says, Woodbird, lead me off to this uh, mountain and I'm going to go save Brynhilda. And let's listen to the end of this act. We hear some of the Woodbird, uh, the Woodbird kind of fluttering along in excitement. And then we hear the motif of the Woodbird. Uh, I think this is actually a great end to the act. It kind of surprises you a little bit. Most of Wagner's endings to acts are incredibly bombastic, as this one is, but a little surprise ending here. So let's listen to the very end of Act Two of Siegfried. of the second act of Siegfried. And if you listen to our intro episode or you're a ring buff, you'll know that here Wagner took a big pause. This was the last note that he would compose for 12 years on the ring cycle. So he, at this point we're at 1857 and Wagner stepped away from the ring and actually wrote two complete operas in the interim of Tristan and Isolde and Meistersinger von Nuremberg. He managed to write one of the most groundbreaking operas uh, in history, certainly in the 20th century, and Tristan totally changed our, our idea of what uh, harmony could do and introduced a uh, concept called chromaticism, which would come to dominate a lot of the late 20th, uh, 19th century, and I, excuse me, before I said 20th century, I meant 19th century, but would dominate the late 19th century and early 20th century, and... Meisterzinger von Nuremberg, a very controversial opera, maybe his most uh, overtly anti-Semitic opera, um, one that I would have uh, difficulty performing myself, even though it happens to be great music. But in any case, busy with other things, and he would only return to the third act of Siegfried 12 years later. And by that point, he had, would have moved from Switzerland. He, had, he would have a a uh, royal patron in the King of Bavaria, Ludwig II. He would be working on Neuschwanstein Castle. He would be planning ideas for Bayreuth, his, his opera house. Um, and so a lot was going to happen in this interim. And so we'll keep an ear out as we return for potential differences in the music because this is a real breaking point. Um, and we wait 12 years before he writes another note of the ring 
I can't really even imagine, I'm just thinking right now, uh, what I was like when I was a 15-year-old 12 years ago. It uh, probably wouldn't even be able to recognize myself, so needless to say, Wagner probably underwent some serious transformation in 12 years taking off uh, from composition, but that's where we will pick off, pick up off next time, and uh, we'll examine Act 3 of Siegfried, written much, much later in the late, late 1860s. So we will be back soon with that third act of Siegfried to round out this opera, and then it is on to the final opera of Götterdammerung, my personal favorite. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Stay safe and enjoy listening to The Ring Cycle. <laughs>